You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same then, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that you are high and lifted up in the heavens. You are far above us. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, and yet you have chosen to reveal yourself. You are a God of speech, of revelation. You have given us your will, your word, and your son, Jesus. And so we pray now that he might be high and lifted up in our hearts as we submit ourselves under your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see everyone this evening. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I would love to meet you after this service and get to know you better. Uh, Kyle, who's already been up here, and then two of our ministry residents, Jordan and Aaron, and I spent uh, three days this week at a preaching workshop just thinking about, with our Bibles open, what preaching is, why it's important, and the heavy weight of teaching God's Word. It is heavy, teaching God's Word, but I love it. Uh, This is a high privilege, but the fact that I get to just study and prepare and meditate on and then preach and teach God's Word for us is just amazing. I love it. I love the Bible, even with a renewed sense this week. Uh, So just to give you a heads up with the Bible, uh, we're going to finish Ephesians in just two more weeks, and then as we've done uh, the past few years around this time at middle fall or so, uh, Kyle is going to preach a one-off sermon the last Sunday of October, the day before Halloween, uh, on missions. What is missions? Why are missions important? Who are the people that are on these canvases, on the walls? Uh, Some practical and philosophical even changes that we've made and begin to think differently about over the past six or nine months or so. Uh, So that's going to be great. And then we're going to take a month, the whole month of November, to work through the short book of Ruth, four weeks in November. Uh, Start reading that. It's so good. It'll take you about 15 or 20 minutes to read the whole four chapters of Ruth. Uh, So maybe read that a few times before uh, the first week of November. And then we'll start the Gospel of Luke, the first Sunday of December. And I am pumped, like can't wait for Luke. But we're not there yet. So Ephesians, Ephesians, can you remember way back, way back, the the first 
when we started talking about this book, and something that I've said perhaps many, many times over the past many months together through this book, this overarching idea that we've been thinking about with this book, this letter that Paul has written, that God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. All things. He's bringing the realms of heaven and earth together into unity with Jesus. The realms of darkness and death into a new unity with a realm of light and life. He has made it Gentile and Jew into, into one new man. He is bringing the church into deeper unity with one another through its shared union with Jesus so that even, it's a different book, but the things that we profess together in Romans 8 might be true, that the entire separation of heaven and earth uh, might not be able to separate his people from the love of Christ. Why? Because they are united in Christ. And last week, we thought about the marriage relationship, that two individual people enter into a covenantal relationship of union, that the you and you then becomes a y'all, a together, a union, a unity. And one thing that we kind of danced around last Sunday, but didn't spend too much time on, is that the marriage relationship is not always a relationship of unity. Marriages can often and regularly be a relationship, perhaps the closest relationship, of opposition. Two people who are opposed to each other. But Paul tells both husband and wife to live and to love like Jesus in both submission and sacrificial love for one another, for the glory of Christ, and for their mutually and growing joy. So God is bringing all things together into union, heaven and earth into unity with Christ. And if that's true, then it makes sense that these big, huge, like cosmic realities, if they are bringing brought into union with Christ, then it should make sense that the very closest human relationships that we have also should be brought into further union with one another. This huge cosmic unity ought to trickle then down into our very closest relationships. So last week we started with the marriage relationship, but Paul is going to just keep hammering on this theme today with a big idea of that we are to seek deeper unity in our very closest relationships. Seek deeper unity in your closest relationships. And so he's going to keep hammering that theme with two other relationships of nearness and even two other kinds of relationships that we might even experience with regular conflict, often opposition. That of the child-parent relationship and the servant-master relationship. So Paul is going to say, pursue unity. Seek deeper unity in your closest relationships. And he's going to address both sides of the coin in both of those relationships here. So we're going to take these then in four parts tonight. Each one of these could have been easily its own sermon, but to spare you all, we're going to do it all in one, and we're going to think through four things, four commands to four different audiences. So the first is children, obey your parents. Parents, disciple your children. Servants, obey your masters, and masters, love your servants. So first of all, children, obey your parents. Verse 1 in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then quoting from the Ten Commandments here, he says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, just like last week, verse 1 here would not have been a weird thing in the first century to write at all. Even though Paul has upped the stakes here with moving from the word he gave to wives of submit Here, he says to children to obey. 
Children in the first century, until they had come of age, and oftentimes even until they were married, were treated not very much differently than slaves or servants. Children were legally considered the property of their fathers. And while many other wider household codes that we kind of talked about last week too, many other Greek and Roman household codes here where the writer is addressing different audiences of society, uh, in these different other household codes, sometimes there were written to or about children the expected norms of children. Like, uh, they would be writing to parents to say, this is what you must make your children be and do. And so Paul here then throws a massive curveball by addressing children personally. So Ephesian kids might have been sitting in a gathering, listening to this letter being written, and thinking, ah, yeah, I've heard something like this. Now he's going to tell us how we have to act. Or tell, more specifically, tell my dad how to make me act. But then, Paul then says, children, and perhaps the Ephesian ears, the immature little Ephesian shoulders would have perked up. What's what's this? He's speaking directly to me? Paul is addressing you, children, as a human being, someone who has also, just like your mom and dad, been created by God to know him. And so he's addressing you as a human being and talking directly to you. So I'm going to do the same thing, boys and girls. Young men, young women, this section is for you. Your parents, kids, your parents are God's way of teaching you to live under authority. Like, do you own your house, kids? Do you own your own house? Do you rule your own house? Do you own the world? Do you rule the world? No, your house is actually just a little kind of like model of living in God's world. So God is teaching you to learn that it isn't good to just think or do whatever you want to. There are consequences for yourself and for others when you do or say just whatever comes into your head. When something comes into your head, it is good for us to learn to whoop, grab the things that should not come out. And so your parents want to help you to learn what it means to live, not out of love for yourself, but out of love for God and out of love for other people, your brothers and sisters, your classmates at school, your neighbors, your friends that you play with on your sports teams. And so your parents want to help you learn what it means to live, not out of love for yourself, but out of love for God and for others. Now, question, will your parents do this perfectly? No. Your your parents said that. Kids, will your parents teach you to love for God and to love for others perfectly? Kids, no. Why? Because they are sinners just like you are. They will mess up in their own selfishness. Sometimes they'll even mess up in their own sin and selfishness against you. But it is good for you to learn to obey. Something I learned from uh, another dad that was close to me, what he taught his own kids, what it meant to obey. So I've shared with, shared this with you several times, but here's what we've taught our boys, what it means to obey. What it means to obey is doing what an authority tells you to do. Three things, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's what it means to obey. To do what someone asks you to do, an authority, so your parents your your teachers, your grandparents, your aunt and uncle, whoever your parents have given the authority over your life to, to, to be and to do, to do what they ask you to do right away, immediately, 
not five minutes from now or 10 minutes from now, but right away and all the way, not just partially doing what they're asking you to do, but all of it, right away, all the way, and maybe the most important part, with a happy, with a happy heart. Doing it joyfully because we know that our moms and our dads love us. If over 18 years in your parents' house, you can begin to grow in your, spo- your response to your mom and your dad or with other authorities right away, all the way, and with a happy heart with, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, or yes, mom, yes, dad, even when you don't want to, then we're growing in our response to how God is asking us to obey him as well. Paul says right here that it is right to obey your mom and dad. Or in Colossians 3.20, Paul says that obeying your parents actually pleases God. Pleases God. It makes God happy when you obey your parents. When you begin to trust them and obey them rather than just trusting yourself. And again, why? Why is this good? And why does Paul even make, make, uh, he talks about the Ten Commandments, about like living long and well in the land. Why might that happen? Because when you begin to trust and obey your parents rather than yourself when you leave your mom and dad's house. Many of you guys, young boys and girls, aren't even thinking about that right now. But when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, hopefully you're going to be leaving your parents' house, and they're not going to be there anymore to tell you what to do. That sounds awesome, right? When mom and dad aren't there to tell you what to do anymore, but that's actually maybe a scary thing too. They're actually not going to be there to help tell you what to do. You're going to be in a place now where you, by yourself, am going to have to think and decide, am I going to do what God is asking me to do? And so your parents, for 18 years or so, are helping to train you to listen to the voice of God, to hear and quickly obey, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart, yes, God, Yes, God. Yes. So, little guys, little girls, this command is for you. Obey your parents in the Lord. And this is actually for your joy. It might seem like when mom and dad are asking you to do something that you don't want to do, they hate you and they don't want you to be happy. It's actually the opposite. That when we are living under God's rules for our lives, it's actually for more joy when we learn to obey and respond. So again, learning to obey here in the words of the third commandment that Paul is quoting from here, honor your father and mother is a way to practice for honoring God for the rest of your life. Every day is like going to practice. If you're playing on a sports team and you practice doing the same thing, if you hit a baseball off of a tee or you pass a soccer ball to your teammate or you're hitting a volleyball or something, that's practice. Why? To get better at those things. When we are hearing the voice of our parents and obeying, we're actually practicing. Practicing, getting better at obeying the Lord for the rest of our life. Why? Well, because you can't see God. Can you? Anybody see God? Can you see God? I cannot see God. Can you see your parents? I think so. Turn to them. Can you see your parents? Yes, you can see your parents. Can you hear God's word? Can you hear him speaking to you in the sky? No. Some of us, some of you guys, maybe can't even read yet. But when we have the Bible, we can actually read and hear God's word. And so the voice of your parents, especially when your parents are speaking God's word to you, they're actually speaking for God. 
You can see your parents. You can see your aunts or your uncles. You can see your grandparents or your teachers or whoever is caring for you. You can see them and you can hear their voice when they're asking you to do something, even when you don't want to. Should you just obey your parents when you like what they're asking you to do? Son, please go get the ice cream out of the refrigerator. Yes, mommy! Uh, that's easy to do. It's sometimes more difficult to obey mom and dad when they're asking us to do things that we don't want to do. Even when, what you would, when you would rather not listen to them, when you would rather do what you want to do. So learning to obey to your, your parents is learning to obey God for the rest of your life, even when you don't want to, for your joy. Living under God's rule in his kingdom is actually the best place that you can possibly live, even when it doesn't seem like it's a joyful place to live. This is the way that God has created the world to be and has created for you to live, of training your ears and your brain to, sp to pay special attention when your mom or your dad is talking. Uh, I don't, do you guys know of Charlie Brown, little kids? You guys watch Peanuts? There's the Peanuts movie. It's not as, it's not as big of a thing as it was when I was a kid right? But do you remember what the teachers sound like when the teachers or any other grown-up in Charlie Brown speaks like? What does it sound like? Sometimes I think maybe you kids think that's what my voice sounds like when I'm standing up here for 40 minutes on Sunday. But this should not be with your mom and dad. When your mom and dad are speaking, boop, turn on your ears. When mom and dad are asking you to be something or to do something, we have to switch our ears on and pay special, close attention to when they are speaking. So it takes special effort to ignore our mom and dad's voice, to be attentive and then respond with quick obedience with, yes, mom, yes, dad, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Your parents want so much more than they even know and experience with obedience to the Lord. They want you, when, they are, when you are their age, think about you, when you are your parents' age, they want you to hear what God wants from you and to respond even with more obedience than they have to the Lord, right away, all the way with a happy heart. Even if your parents sometimes don't live up to that standard very well. And middle school kids, high school guys, gals, all of this still applies to you too. Mom and dad just elbowed you, slapped your shoulder. You're getting closer and closer to adulthood. You won't have to call mom and dad to ask for permission to do things very soon. So right now, your parents and other authorities often seem demanding, they often seem unreasonable. But again, just because there are a couple of exceptions of when your mom and dad might ask you to do something that's not right, that doesn't mean that we throw out the entire in the Lord command in this, to obey your parents in the Lord, unless they are causing you to sin, even you as a teenager, unless they are causing you to sin, we ought to turn our ears on and obey right away, all the way with a happy heart as unto the Lord, as unto Christ, because to obey and honor your parents in this time of your life is to actually obey and honor Jesus who has given his authority to your mom and dad. So more often than not, though, your parents are not being unreasonable. They have more life experience than you. They can see into the future of what the result or consequences of this decision that you're trying to make for your life will bring for your life that you can't see. 
because you don't have the kind of experience they have. So Mark Twain supposedly once said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Really, when you get to 21, you just realize, oh, the things that my dad, my mom were asking me to do that I thought were completely ridiculous and unreasonable, they really weren't that unreasonable. Your culture tells you that to be, to really be you, you need to be free of your parents. But God tells you that to really be you, you actually need to be free of yourself. And you need to listen to your parents. Now kids, I say this several times a year, but I want you to hear me say it again. Every, every boy, girl, young man, young woman out there, eyes on me. If your mom or your dad or another authority in your life, a teacher, a babysitter, a family member, a friend, ever asks you to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, ever. Anything that ever makes you sad, scared, or hurts, you need to tell another grown-up right away, right away. Don't listen to a, voice, a verse like this in the Bible and say, oh, I need to do exactly what this teacher or my mom or my grandfather or whatever is telling me to do, and so I have to do something that I don't want to do that makes me sad, scared, or hurts. You need to tell another grown-up right away. That is not what the Bible is telling you to do, that you just have to do whatever the grown-up is telling you to do. Tell a teacher at school. Tell one of us at church. God does not allow just any grown-up in your life to tell any kid what to do, especially when they are being mean to you or being selfish. Do you hear me? Boys and girls, yes, do you hear me? Do you understand? Like tonight, to, tonight is a night that you need to actually tell someone if someone, if a grown-up at school or somewhere else is doing something that you don't like and that makes you feel uncomfortable. Please some, tell someone today, okay? Okay, okay. Okay? Okay. But otherwise, Paul is commanding you, boys and girls, young men, young women, teenagers out there, to seek deeper unity with your parents. Boys and girls, teenagers, Paul is telling you to seek deeper unity with your parents through obedience to them. But then secondly, parents, you're not off the hook. Paul flips over the coin. And specifically here to fathers, now secondly, parents, disciple your children. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So just in case you mom or dad out there was feeling, feeling the urge uh, when, verse, when these verses were read, these first couple verses of Ephesians 6 were read to like make sure you're elbowing and slapping your son or daughter on the shoulder. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? Paul turns the mirror around to you all. Turns around the mirror so that you, mom and dad, might see clearly. Now again, this, this part right here, this part is the countercultural part. In this day and age, who cares if your kids are encouraged or discouraged? Or the word that Paul uses provoked. Who cares if your son or your daughter is provoked to anger or not? Just make sure that they obey. That's the most important part culturally, that your kids know their place in your household and they will do exactly and whatever you tell them to do. But Paul, motivated by the love of God the Father, which has transformed parents' hearts, he is also concerned about the hearts of children under your care. 
It's one thing to require obedience from your children, and you should. You ought to, as mom and dad, require, demand obedience from your children as unto the Lord for their own joy. You're trying to train them as an 18 or a 25 or a 35-year-old to obey the Lord and to begin to love it as a bit of like habitual response to hear and obey. You ought to require and demand obedience from your children. But it is another thing altogether to require obedience in such a way that your children often or regularly begrudge your commands, begrudgingly or just in a beaten down way. Yes, mom. Yes, dad. Okay. Just think about how in the first five chapters of Ephesians, God is demanding but pulling, persuading obedience out of us out of his children. He is doing this through love. He is doing this through sacrifice. He is doing this through example, through his life and death. The Lord Jesus has given himself for our obedience. We love to obey him because we know, we trust him. So parents, there are many ways to provoke your children as you discipline them. Like kids are very clumsy. I'm sorry, Children out there, I hate to tell you this, you are clumsy, I know. You'll get less clumsy as you grow older, but the amount of honest accidents that happen when, with kids is way more than with you, right? And so, discipline, willful disobedience, yes, but do not discipline accidents. They happen. They're kids. It's going to happen. Seek to gently course correct the kid, uh, or course correct like kid stuff, stuff that happens because they're kids, with gentle encouragement, not with anger or discipline. Another way to provoke your kids is the same thing that Paul implicitly confronted in husbands back in chapter 5, of harshness. Not like the gentle love of Christ. Do not provoke your children to anger because you are just being harsh. Is your correction and your discipline done in losing your temper? Do you discipline with anger? Or is discipline, correction, done in self-control and in love? If your discipline looks, sounds, and acts about the same way that your child's siblings respond when they are doing something that is annoying or even angering, if one of your children responds and corrects the other child, and then you respond not a whole lot differently than that child, then you are likely going to provoke your child toward discouragement. Oh yeah, I hear this voice all the time from my brother, from my sister, from that mean kid at school. Whatever, I get corrected like this all the time. This is not a voice that I love to submit to. And another way that parents can provoke their kids to anger is inconsistency. If I'm nine years old and one of my parents doesn't react or care at all about me saying this or doing that one week, but then two or three weeks later, the same parent or another parent then begins to discipline me for the exact same thing that was ignored a couple weeks ago, that's confusing to me. I don't know what is right or wrong. So parents, wisdom is required to decide the kinds of things that you are going to discipline for, but you must be consistent. If you are training your child to obey your word so that they'll obey God, make sure that your word is trustworthy. That they begin to trust your word. If you say that you are going to do something, whether that be a treat or that be discipline, then follow through with that. 
Do what you say you're going to do so that your word becomes trustworthy and reliable for your children. Now, you may still be objecting to my use of the word in our heading here, disciple. You don't see this word in this verse, do you? This word isn't here. It doesn't show up in verse 4. But I think, I, I can't actually think of a better word to summarize what Paul is saying here. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In fact, discipline and disciple are the same root word. To become like something. When you become a parent, one of, if not the chief roles that you now have for your life, one of the most important vocations that you have now is to have that of a disciple maker, that you are constantly and regularly looking over your shoulder and saying, come on, follow me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Here's where we're going, kids. Little ducklings. Let's go. Here we, we are following Jesus, and this is what it looks like to know and to love Jesus. This is what it means to, and it means and looks like to serve him with our lives, to obey him with our lives. And if you don't know what that looks like, to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to obey him, if you, are, if you do know those things, but you are just struggling in those areas with your own knowledge and love of God, then we are here for you. We want to help you. This is just a few minutes here on parenting. We've got other resources available to you. We did a, a uh, parenting seminar back in 2019. There's many hours worth of content on the podcast feed or on the website that are really helpful. There's many great recommended resources on the website and uh, even some books on the mobile book cart out there. But more than just handing you a link or a book, we want to help you and walk with you as you parent your own kids. You can't give away what you don't have. And so we want to help in your own love and your knowledge of God. So that rather than being annoyed with your kids, frustrated by your kids, angered by your kids, Paul is telling us here to seek deeper unity with our children. As frustrating as they can sometimes be, to seek deeper unity in these often oppositional relationships that we have. God is bringing all things cosmically together into unity with Christ. He will not allow us to get away with not bringing unity in the very practical and up-in-our-face relationships that we have. Seek deeper unity in your closest relationships. All right. I can't believe how little I've given us for our third and fourth sections here, but let's keep moving. Thirdly, servants, obey your masters. In verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Now, clearly, with Paul addressing bondservants and masters, the context he is addressing here is not your workplace, right? Your workplace where you are paid, often paid very well. Your employer likely provides days off, oftentimes paid days off, and other benefits of the place where you work. And if things aren't going well at that workplace, you can find a new job, right? Unlike the servants that he is addressing here. But nor is Paul commending slavery here. 
The kind of slavery that Paul is addressing is not the kind of racial segregation or white supremacy that immediately fills our imaginations when we think about words or hear words like masters and slaves or servants. We have records of black Roman citizens owning white slaves. There's much more to say here. This is a complicated issue to think through and to read through. So if you'd like, I can send you some more resources or just talk more about this with you. But knowing the societal and economic realities of many folks in the church of Ephesus, Paul will go on, and again, likely with many servants in the room, standing at the back, perhaps against the back wall, he addresses them specifically. Not, hey, masters, you've got some servants, so this is what you must require them to do and to be. No, he writes in such a way that the reader of this letter stands and he's reading, and then perhaps even if he hasn't read it for the first time, he's reading, and then, oh, bondservants, uh, bondservants, I guess you guys in the back there, uh, Paul has something to say to you as well, so here we go, bondservants, he's dignifying them as full humans created in the image of God, they are co-heirs with Christ, it's just alongside, as with their masters, he is addressing them personally and specifically He's addressing their moral agency and even the heart behind their moral agency, behind their obedience. And so verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would with Christ, not by the way way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So like he says, like he gives to children who are to obey in the Lord, here he tells servants to serve their masters as you would Christ. This initially sounds like a crazy thing that Paul would just say. They are to obey their masters as if they are obeying Jesus. But he here is commending excellent work among Christians wherever they find themselves. Wherever a Christian finds themselves, they ought to do excellent work. Servants, he's telling them, don't just serve your master. Don't just serve others when they are watching so that you'll get noticed. Don't just do the right thing because there is reward right here, five minutes later, or a job promotion or whatever else. Do what is right because you are serving the Lord Jesus. Work hard all the time. I think I've shared this with you before, but I worked at a summer camp when I was in college. And the, the motto for all of the counselors that they just instilled us in, in us and ingrained in us was this phrase called bump the lamp. Uh, the director of this camp told a story that when the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit was being made, uh, there's this interrogation scene where the, I don't even remember the, cop's name, but he's like interrogating Roger Rabbit in this uh, dark room with the one single lamp hanging over the table, and Roger Rabbit, the animated Roger Rabbit, jumps up from his chair and jumps through where the lamp was, but the lamp doesn't move. And so the director makes the entire uh, company go back and redo the entire thing 
makes them reshoot and reanimate the entire thing. If Roger Rabbit jumps there, the lamp must move. It must swing. And when the lamp swings, then all of the shadows move in the room. Now, very few people, I think most of us, if we watch that scene of that movie with Roger Rabbit jumping by a lamp would have never noticed that the lamp, hey, I think the lamp should have moved right there. But he would have noticed. The director would have noticed. Animators, still to this day, like Pixar animators, still call going above and beyond what anyone else would notice in their work. They call that bumping the lamp. Oh, we got to bump the lamp right there. And so our camp director used this to encourage ownership and excellence in our work. Like that if you see a piece of trash on the ground, even if not one human soul in the whole world will ever see or notice that you picked up that piece of trash, bump the lamp. Don't wait for someone to ask you to do something. If it needs to be done, get it done. Bump the lamp. If you do a job, do it excellently. Bump the lamp wherever you find yourself. And so in every job, literally, since I've been at that camp in 2005, bump the lamp has been of like one of my most important subconscious mottos wherever I am, caring for the well-being of the business or wherever I happen to be or working for, just in a thousand small and immeasurable ways. I, find my, I found myself in a bathroom last week, uh, and I was out, there was a, some paper towels on the ground, and I was about to walk out the door, and I grabbed the door handle, and I was like, bump the lamp. And uh, from 2005, it's still just something that is so important. We must just pursue excellence as unto the Lord. So because servants, or in our context, employees, or verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whatever he, whether he is a bondservant or free, Paul is saying here, he's not just saying that Jesus is very concerned and he's keeping a list of every time you pick up the trash or you don't pick up the trash, and if you do pick up the trash, you're going to get a reward in heaven. That's not what Paul is saying, but that Christians ultimately work for the master. Not the master, but the master. The capital M, master. And God has you in that workplace, wherever it is, and perhaps even for just a season, intentionally. He has you there intentionally. Even if your employer makes it difficult for you to want to work excellently for him or for her, Work excellently in response to and for the sake of Christ, who is excellent and is worthy to be praised and worked for in whatever we do. Just as Paul would say in Colossians 3, that whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of Christ. So that when we go to work, we work as unto the Lord with excellence. Martin Luther King Jr. once, in actually addressing a group of people who were oppressed and did not find themselves wanting to do excellent work. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great sweet street sweeper who did his job well. He did excellent work as unto the Lord. I'm not saying that you should work somewhere forever for a manager who is making your life miserable, but for as long as you are there, submission, and Paul's word here, obedience, is actually, again, good training ground. 
You're not a kid anymore, but this is still good training ground for hearing a voice of authority and responding, dare I say, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Not just when you agree or when you understand. God is watching our work. He's watching our work as unto the Lord, and he is watching evil as well. But vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is of the Lord. Wrongdoers will be repaid, so seek deeper unity in your closest relationships. Oftentimes, a workplace relationship that is oppositional, that is difficult, and filled with conflict, seek deeper unity there, especially in workplaces where both employer and employee are both Christians. When Paul is addressing a room of masters and servants, and they are in the same room and then going home in the workplace together, that kind of relationship must be of special and unique unity. Which brings us here to our fourth point, where Paul counterculturally addresses place of authority as well when he tells masters to love your servants. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them, which is a little unclear. He's not, it's not immediately clear what the same the masters are to do, but likely they are to do good with a sincere heart to their servants. And he says, and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So masters, managers, supervisors, business owners, employers, do you own the world? No. Do you rule the world? No. Is whatever you do because of your place of authority, though, justifiable just because you can? Just because you feel like it? Or, in the way that your authority, your master, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, has ruled and governed you in love, in humility, in service, in genuine care, in life, is that now the model for how you govern and care for your employees, for your business? Again, I struggle to find the right word for the heading, the right imperative word here that seems to come from these verses. And you might be thinking, love? Really? Love isn't there, which is true. But if these are both Christians, masters, servants, employers, employees, remember Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. Flip back over there, Ephesians 5, where Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Masters, submit to your servants. What? But again, just like we talked about, talked about last week, with husbands and wives, how does God expect Christians to use their place of authority to serve? That it's not just the wives, children, and servants, or the employees who ought to be in many ways losing themselves, becoming less you and becoming more y'all, but also the husbands, also parents, also, also employers, submitting to, deferring to, and loving one another, seeking deeper unity in your closest relationships, becoming less of yourself and more of you all, the body of Christ. 
Perhaps sacrificing some profit because your employees are human beings created in the image of God with their own particular stories and difficulties. They are not expendable and replaceable cogs in some machine of your money-making ventures. But they are human beings. Now that doesn't mean that you need to sacrifice workplace efficiency to have some meeting once a day with every single one of your employees to find out what they really want so that you might defer to their wants and their desires or something like that. But you absolutely ought to be the best boss or manager your employees have ever had. That they know and trust, he loves me, she cares for me, she knows me, he wants what is best for me, the aroma and character of Christ. And not just if you have Christian employees, but that your life might exhibit to your employees, hey, you, you want to know what it means to be a Christian? Do you want to know what a Christian looks like? Do you want to know why being a Christian is so good and worth it? Hey, here we go. Follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. And again, if you're now overwhelmed with dread and with shame and with guilt that you have not been this kind of parent, you have not been this kind of employer or manager, the good news of the gospel says there is no shame, no guilt, nor dread, that Jesus has bled and died for it, that he might welcome you out of darkness and into the light. The gospel, the free gift of the gospel is for you and is for me today, tomorrow, and for eternity. And just like we addressed with parents, we want to help you grow into deeper unity with Jesus, that your love and worship and knowledge of Christ might just more easily overflow into whatever relationships that you have to equip you, chapter four, to do the work of the ministry wherever you are, even in your workplaces. Now, were you here for week one in our start of Ephesians way back in June? Remember, we thought about it, that it, while, while it might look like to the world and to us even that the world and our lives are in chaos, like a bunch of toys on a merry-go-round. When you spin it, they all fly off. But in reality, while things might look that way, all things are moving inward, like the quarters of a, court, a quarter funnel in the mall. That all things are actually coming inwardly into Jesus, even when it looks like chaos. That this is absolutely the person and unity of the Lord Jesus is where we are headed for eternity. And if that is so, then let's begin more and more in these kinds of like representative horizontal relationships that we have to seek the love and unity of Jesus wherever we find ourselves. That the work you is the real you. Perhaps even more so, the home you is actually the real you. And the love of Christ compels us to not only desire and to seek after love of humanity out there generally. Yes, I love humans. Faceless, nameless humanity out there. But our understanding of Jesus, our love and faith in Jesus, compels us inwardly towards actual human beings. Often those humans in those relationships that are the most difficult in our lives. We're up close and personal with these people so much and there's gonna be conflict. Seek deeper unity in the closest relationships that you have, first and foremost. And then we can start talking and learning how to seek unity and love with humanity out there. Start here first. Do not make that jump. 
Jesus is bringing all things into unity with himself, cosmically and in our relationships and in our church. May it be so for the glory of Christ and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your love, your care, your wisdom over this universe and for each and every one of our small lives. God, help us, help us to acknowledge and to love that we are not the authority in our lives. Help us to love to be your servants, to love to be in a place where we hear your voice and to obey. Use our relationships that we have and wherever we find ourselves in places under authority to actually appreciate being under authority that we might be trained more and more to hear and to obey. Help us in places of authority to give away our lives, to sacrifice our own demands and desires for the good of others, that we might find joy that he who gives away his life, who loses his life, might actually find it. This is what we want, God. It's the desire of every human to find life You have given us the words of life. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you, to submit to you, and to be brought into greater unity with Jesus and with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.